if you're new to our church, you're very welcome to keep this Bible. And if you're not in the habit of reading the Bible, we'd love to teach you and encourage you to do that. So if you're just getting started with us, it's kind of weird. It's like reading a book and joining the book club halfway through the book. So you have some catching up to do. There's a couple ways you can do that. You can read Romans on your own, but we also have all of the messages from the book of Romans available online, or if you want to get CDs, you can sign up and ask for them. We want people to learn to read the Bible. So let me remind you that the, the, the book of Romans is about the gospel. And, and if the greatest thing that I could hope for is that by the time we get done a study of the gospel, that everybody here will be constantly rehearsing the gospel, constantly thinking about the various multifaceted ways that the gospel affects our lives. In fact, I would say the gospel beats an iPhone hands down because no matter what problem you have in your life, the gospel has an app for that. It has an application. The gospel is not just, hey, you could be forgiven. The gospel provides us hope, freedom, forgiveness, power, purpose. It's all about the gospel. And it's so sad when people, oh, I already know the gospel. We don't even begin to know the gospel. The gospel is not just for unsaved people. Paul read to, wrote to the Christians, not to pagans. He says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you because he knew that it's the gospel of Christ. It's a focus on the death and resurrection of our glorious Savior that transforms people. So by the time he finishes Romans at the end of the book, he says, now God can establish you according to my gospel. And that's our hope and prayer that as you study through Romans, that your life will be transformed by the gospel. So let me remind you where we are in the book. The first four chapters of, of Romans, remember the chapters were added later, but it's kind of think of segments of the Bible. It's kind of like a play. The first act, Romans 1 through 4, is about how to get right with God. We call that the heart of the gospel. And the key word there was justification. If you want to be right with God, you've got to be justified. You've got to be declared righteous by God. And we learn from Romans 1 through 4 that you don't get right with God by good works or by turning over a new leaf or by being religious. We learn from Romans that we aren't right with God, that we're far more desperately sinful than we even imagined. And that all of us have fallen short. Jews and Gentiles, religious or irreligious, we're corrupt, we're disobedient, and we deserve God's judgment. And there's nothing we can do religiously to get right with God. But the Bible says in Romans 3, but God, because of his love for us, he sent Christ. And Christ went up on that cross and he bore God's wrath so that we could be forgiven freely as a gift by grace, not by works. And we receive it by faith. Like beggars, we come and, and, and we trust and we receive Christ as Lord and Savior. And we're justified and we have peace with God, and our whole lives are radically altered. But the Christian life is not just about how to get right with God. That's the heart of the gospel. But then in Romans 6 through 8, and that's where we are right now. We're in Act 2. We're in the, the hope of the gospel, because the gospel has a transforming influence, both in the present and an exciting hope for the future. The, the present hope of the gospel is that I don't have to just keep being the same old sinner who just happens to be saved by grace. Paul says in Romans chapter 6 that we've been freed from sin, and the result of that is sanctification. 
And that's an important word. Christians need to know what sanctification is. They'll go, oh, them there are big words. I don't understand them. That's the heart and soul of being a Christian. You and I are becoming more and more free from sin and more and more like Christ. Sanctification, this work that God is doing in our lives, this ongoing process is incredibly important to God. He's far more concerned about who we are than what we do for Jesus. And so God is working from the inside out to sanctify, set us apart, and change us. And we're all in process. I'm not a graduate of the school of sanctification. We're all strugglers. But we need to find where we are in our sanctification and how are we working together with God to work out our salvation, to allow the Holy Spirit to change us into the image of Christ so that we're not just phonies or shallow, but that we're genuinely experiencing a changed life. You see, Romans 6-8 promises, look in chapter 6, verse 4. Paul says, we've been buried with Christ through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father. It says we might walk in newness of life. So, so the promises of the gospel are a new life in Christ. And even though you might not be experiencing much of that, maybe you say, I've been saved since I was four years old and I don't really see much of a new life. If you're truly saved, you have been given a new life by Christ. And this new life has tremendous potential. Verse 6 says, our old self was crucified with him, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. So this new life is a life where I don't have to be like unbelievers. I don't have to be like I used to be. But that on the inside, I can experience progress and growth and freedom. Over in chapter 7, Paul promised... And the word of God promises us in verse 4 that we've died to the law, that we might bear fruit for God. See, this is, this is good stuff. God doesn't want us to just be like, ah, well, you know, we're all just forgiven. You know, please be patient with me. No, I, I have new life. I'm free from sin. I, I'm united with Christ. I have the Holy Spirit in me, and now I have the capacity to bear fruit for God. I'm, I'm learning, Paul says in chapter 7, verse 6, to walk in the newness of the Spirit. So, what's that going to look like? Well, we kind of hit a wall, didn't we, when we came to chapter 7, verses 14 through 25, because Paul described this intense struggle. So, it's almost like JK, like bait and switch, like chapter 6. You're free from sin to serve Jesus. You're free to walk a new life. You're free to have power and victory and be different and have joy and fruit for God. But JK, you're really going to just be this loser who goes, oh, why am I so terrible? Why do I always do what I don't want to do? So in the history of the church, Romans 7, 14 through 25 has received a tremendous amount of attention because the question that we want to ask this morning is, is Paul describing the normal mature Christian experience. You're like, well, yeah. I mean, I get verse 24, wretched man that I am. I mean, I said a curse word on the way to church today. So this must be the normal experience. But I want you to think about this, that in the history of interpreting this passage, there's been at least three ways that people have looked at this. Some people believe that this passage is really talking about Paul before he was a Christian. 
So there are good, godly Bible scholars and men in the history of the church who go, this isn't Christian. This is Paul describing before he was a Christian. He wanted to please God. He wanted to do what God said, but he knew that he had no capacity to do that. Now, I don't agree with that, partly because Paul keeps using the present tense. He didn't say, I used to do this, I used to do this. But the second view is that Paul's describing the normal Christian experience. And I look at verse 24 and I say, if you were to say to Paul, hey, how, how, how have you been lately? Would he say, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me? How do you think I'm doing? I'm doing horrible. I'm defeated. No matter how much I want to do what's right, I don't do it. I end up doing what I don't want to do. And I'm going, hmm. That doesn't sound like what he said in Philippians. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That doesn't sound like what he said in Galatians. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. It doesn't sound like the fruit of the Spirit that he mentioned in Galatians. And so we come to this question, is Paul simply describing the normal Christian struggle and this is what it means to be a Christian. You're just constantly defeated by your sin. Or is there a third option? And I would suggest, along with many others, including John Stott, that what Paul's intending in verses 14 through 25 is to show what Stott calls the substandard Christian experience. The Christian experience of saying, this is what my Christian life was like when I tried to do it on my own. It's interesting, Paul mentions the word I about 22 times in verses 14 through 24. But notice that when he describes this wretched man, and he asks the question in verse 24, who will set me free? In other words, is he saying, oh, wretched man that I am? And the reality is, that's basically what it means to be a Christian. Or is he anticipating in chapter 8 that there is a better experience for the Christian? as they learn about the Holy Spirit. Well, I'd like to suggest that that's exactly what he's doing. For he says in verse <coughs> 24 of 7, who will set me free? In chapter 8, verse 2, he says, the Spirit has set you free. So my view is that chapter 7, verses 14 through 25 is not necessarily intended to say, this is the normal Christian struggle. Now that, and, and again, this is where Pastor Bob had a little different view on that, and that's okay. This isn't a major doctrine. Different pastors will have different views on certain things, and I don't want you to take my view or his view, but I want you to think about this. I'm not suggesting that the Christian life does not involve struggle. That's clear. Galatians 5 tells us, the flesh lusts against the spirit, so there's something inside me that wants to do wrong. The Holy Spirit lusts against the flesh, and and these are in opposition. Okay, so, so, so I don't think or want you to think that I don't believe that the Christian life is a struggle. Of course it's a struggle. But I don't think Paul's primary intention in chapter 7, 14 to 25 is to say, this is what it means to be a Christian. You live this terrible, almost schizophrenic war inside of you where you continually experience nothing but frustration and defeat. Why can't I do what I want? Why do I always do what I don't want? But rather, he's setting us up for the reality that there is a Christian experience through the Holy Spirit that is quantitatively, qualitatively different. 
In other words, in Galatians 5, Paul says, when Christians walk by the Spirit, they don't carry out the desires of the flesh. So yeah, we still have <coughs> struggles and feelings and desires. But he says, those who are, are walking in the Spirit have love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and self-control. And you go, is that possible? Is it possible to, to, to experience victory and to have joy? Well, Paul says, yeah, it's not only possible, it should be God's goal for you and me to experience that. That's, that's his desire for us, to learn that now with Christ in us and the Holy Spirit in us, we now can please God. And so beginning in chapter 8, and remember, if, if, if these chapter breaks weren't there, they help us find our place, but they sometimes interrupt the, the, the point of, it's like a commercial, like where were we? Just assume that he's just described this struggle. He's asked the question, who's going to free me? And now he's going to answer the question. And so what I, what I would like to suggest is that I think what God's telling us in, the, in chapter 8, the first 17 verses, we're not going to cover them all today, is that believers can live a life pleasing to God. That believers can fulfill God's desire through the work of Christ and the work of His Spirit. So let's take a look at chapter 8, and we're going to look, first of all, at verses 1 through 4. Do we still have that? Do we lose it? There we go. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4, and I'm going to suggest that I think what God's saying, you follow along, is that the work of Christ and the Spirit actually now does enable us to live a life pleasing to God not a life of constant defeat. So the work of Christ and the Spirit enables us to live a life pleasing to God. So let's start in verse 1. Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, first and foremost here, I think he's talking forensically or judicially. He's saying, look, if you're a Christian... You are not condemned by God. You don't have to be afraid to die and the man upstairs says, you're not coming into heaven. Because Christ paid for our sins. God condemned our sin on the cross of Christ. So positionally, God sees you and between you and him is the cross. So therefore, there's no condemnation. Okay, That's big. That's important. You need to rehearse that. You need to remind yourself that. I need to teach myself that. Because Satan is constantly going to be telling you there is condemnation. The Bible calls him the accuser of the brethren. Our conscience can condemn us. Because we know deep down that we're not what we should be. So God says, look, you need to understand that in your position, there's no condemnation. But I think Paul's going beyond just our position. He's not just saying, hey, listen, always remind yourself that you're forgiven. But he's also holding out to us the fact that we can live in such a way that we're not constantly defeated and feeling the condemnation of failure. Because he says there's no condemnation for the law of the spirit of life. Now that's a, a lengthy way I think of saying the Holy Spirit has set you free from the law of sin and death. So somehow he's introducing the idea that the spirit of God can introduce a lifestyle that's free from sin so that we're not continually defeated. 
Now, what does that look like? Well, let's go to verse 3. Paul says, let's start with the law itself. God says, what the law could not do, weak as it was in the flesh, God did. All right. What did God do that the law couldn't do? Well, when God gave his revealed laws, I want you to think about it. He clarified what he expects from people. The Bible says, until the law came, sin was in the world. But when the law came, transgression multiplied. So, so people had a consciousness of failure, but now God brings down, he says, this is what I expect. I expect you do not lie. Do not steal. Don't covet. Oh, okay. That's easy. Don't want what you're not supposed to have. Oh, sure, I'll just turn my anti-coveter off, right? And so all of a sudden, we have these laws, and the, one little kid once said to his mom, I wouldn't be bad if it wasn't for all the rules. Final answer, <clears throat> rules don't make you bad. God's law, Paul said in Romans 7, is good. It shows us what he expects. He expects holiness, righteousness. The problem isn't with the law. The problem is with us. What the law couldn't do, don't need them right now. What the law couldn't do, well, what couldn't it do? It couldn't put us right with God because we can't keep it. So the law is not bad, it's us. Weak as it was to the flesh, God did. So I can't, God goes, this is what I expect from you if you want to get to heaven. This is how I want you to live. And we're going, I can't do that. And God goes, I know. So he solved it. He did it by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin when Jesus was on the cross. He condemned sin in the flesh. So God's going, I know that you can't get right with me by what you do. That's why I sent Christ. I want you to notice carefully what he says about Christ. It says he sent him in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus was fully human like us. He wasn't like a ghost. He wasn't like a phantom or pretending. He had the frail human bodies that was susceptible to death. And I thought about this. What does it mean to be in the likeness of sinful flesh? As I studied this this week, I asked myself, well, if Jesus was susceptible to death, was he susceptible to being sick? Did Jesus ever get a runny nose? Did the disciples ever have to say, Jesus, cover your mouth. I don't, you know, you might get me sick. So there's this mystery about the humanity of Christ because the Bible tells us that he was like us. Hebrews 2 says he, he partook of flesh and blood. He became like us to be our suitable substitute, except he didn't have sinful flesh. He, he himself did not have a sin nature. Jesus' temptations never came from within. Jesus was in all points tempted as we are, but his temptations never came from within. Sometimes we blame the devil too much. Man, the devil was really tempting me. The devil could be on the other side of this planet. James chapter 1 says this, each of us is tempted when we're drawn away by our own lusts. So, Jesus was in the likeness of sinful flesh, but he, but he didn't have a sin nature. And he went up on that cross, and when he said it's finished, God was satisfied that now what the law could not do, put us right with God, Jesus did. The work of Christ is the foundation whereby we can be right with God. But notice it doesn't stop there. It doesn't just say, Jesus died on the cross so that you're forgiven. It says, we receive the, the, the newness of the Spirit so that, look at verse 4, 
the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. What does that mean, the requirement of the law? The Bible says, he has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. If you looked up to heaven right now, you said, God, <clears throat> what do you want from me? He'd say, I want you to keep the law. I want you to fulfill what I had in mind when I gave the law. Now, step back for a moment and think about that. Jesus summed up what the law is all about, right? Like, Jesus, what's the most important thing? He goes, love God and love others. I'm like, okay. What's that going to look like, to love God and love others? How, how am I going to do that? The Apostle Paul says, love is the fulfillment of the law. If I, if I live a life of love for God and others, I'm going to be pleasing to God. And, and the Bible says in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace, and against such things there is no law. The problem is, I don't have the capacity to do that. I only have one default. I do know how to love, so do you. You're really good at loving. The problem is, we love the wrong things. We love ourselves and the things of this world. But God says that through the work of Christ, he condemned sin so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So that my Christian experience is going to be different from unbelievers. Unbelievers think and act and live one way. Christians can think and act and live a different way. Because we don't walk according to the flesh. But according to the spirit. What does that mean? There's a conditional aspect of, of walking in the Spirit. In Galatians 5, Paul says, walk in the Spirit, then you won't carry out the lust of the flesh. I don't think there's any conditional sense here. He's not saying, now there are some Christians out there, some of you who walk according to the Spirit. The rest of you losers, the reason why your spiritual life is so messed up is because you're walking in the flesh. In Romans 8, he's talking about our being and our position. He's going to go on and say, however, believers, you are not in the flesh. You are in the spirit. All of us have been deeply changed by God. And thus we have the capacity to walk a life pleasing to God. So verses one through four, let me say it again. The work of Christ, God condemns sin in the flesh and the gift of the spirit enable me to fulfill what God requires. Enable me to live a life that's pleasing to God. Okay? So, the second thing we're going to look at is found in verses 5 through 11. We're only going to get to verse 9. But what we're going to find is that the reason that we now can live a life of love for God and others, a life of holiness, is because... We're now people of the spirit. We're not people of the flesh. And you're like, well, what does that mean? The other day I was walking with my wife over at Tyler Park and people brought by this dog. It looked like a tiger. I hadn't seen one like that before. I've seen a lot of dogs, but not one like that. I was like, what is that? She's like, oh, he's this and this and this. And I'm like, oh. You know, there are certain sort of dispositions that characterize dogs. Like this Jack Russell went by and we're like... We had one of them. That's what my wife said, because we did. We were like, we had one of them. Then when we got farther, we're like, <laughs> stinks to be you, doesn't it? Right? If you ever had a Jack Russell, you know what I mean by that. Okay? They're the smartest dog in the world. Yeah, well, that doesn't mean they're the easiest dog in the world. Now, 
Then there's the Labrador, the faithful, loyal, oh, warm and fuzzy. Oh, how can I please you, right? So I want you to think in terms of how God describes people. He says there are people according to the flesh. That's unbelievers. And there are people according to the spirit. That's believers. Well, what's the difference? He goes, they're fundamentally different. Their, their, their outlook on life, what they value, what they think about, how they live, what's important to them are fundamentally different. They have a whole different hard drive, okay? There's not three groups. There's not unbelievers and then some Christians. All Christians are according to the Spirit. So let's see what he says, and then we'll wind down and get ready for next week. Paul says, verse 5, for those who are according to the flesh, now that would be unbelievers, the first thing they do is they set their minds on the things of the flesh. In other words, they think about their own desires. They think about the things of this life. But those who are according to the Spirit think about the things of the Spirit. Our eyes have been opened. We think about Christ. We think about the Bible. We think about others. We think about the gospel. And then Paul says in verse 6, for the mind set on the flesh... In other words, the unbeliever's mind is death. Now, what he means by that is a life that's lived disconnected for God just ultimately ends up in death. That's what he says in Romans 6. He goes, why do you want to keep living the way which you're ashamed? The outcome of those things is death. So ultimately, most of the people prancing around on this planet are just living with their mind on the flesh, and they're going to die, and they're going to go to hell. But in contrast, Paul says, but Christians have a mindset on the spirit. So they have life, eternal, but also abundant in this life, and peace. Well, why is that? Why do unbelievers have a mindset that leads to death? Well, look at verse 7. Because the mindset on the flesh. Now, now he's not saying this is just demon-possessed people, really bad people. This is all unbelievers. The mindset on the flesh, unbelievers, is hostile toward God. And you know, the scariest thing is it's so deceiving, they don't even know it. Like, I, I would imagine if you and I went to the mall and say, hey, I'd like to take a survey here. What do you think about God? Do you think most people would go, hate him? If I saw him right now, I'd punch him in the mouth. Right? They don't even realize, even religious people, Fundamentally, God says they're hostile to God. They're broken, and they don't even know it. They're like, what do you mean? I'm not hostile to God. I like God. Here's how they're hostile to God. Number one, he says, they don't subject themselves to the law of God. See, we, we're like fish in water. We don't even recognize the water. We are so screwed up, right, that our, our perception of what real life should be is distorted deeply. Romans chapter 1 says this. Even though men know God, they don't glorify him God, nor are they thankful. Right? So the majority of the people on planet Earth do not wake up every morning going, Oh God, I worship. You are my creator. I am here on this planet to spend every waking moment and every sleeping moment worshiping and serving you. It's not even on their radar. They're not subject to God. And even if they were, what if somebody, and they won't because of their wicked hearts and except for God's grace, what if somebody said, well, I want to? He says, they're not even able to. 
Unbelievers are not able to live a life pleasing to God. They don't want to live a life pleasing to God. This doesn't mean they're all out shooting heroin and killing people. It just means they're living how they want. And isn't that pretty scary? There's a whole lot of people that are going to hell, and they're going, I ain't doing nothing wrong. Yeah, you are. You're just living your way for yourself. And that offends God, because that's not what you were created for. You're like, really? I just thought bad people like murderers went to hell. No. Everyone goes to hell unless they're saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus. So ultimately, those who are in the flesh, unbelievers, cannot please God. You see, Paul's trying to make a point here. You and I can please God because we're not in the flesh. Verse 9 is where we're going to stop this morning. He goes, however, you, Christian, are not in the flesh. You have been fundamentally changed. You're in the spirit. Now, when he says, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you, he's not gone. He dwells in some of you, but he doesn't dwell in some of you. Because notice what he says. If anyone doesn't have the spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to him. This is important. I want to close with this, and then we'll pick it up next week. If you've come from a Pentecostal or charismatic background, you may have been told that you can be a believer, you can be saved, but not have the Holy Spirit yet. So it would not be impossible or unlikely that someone might say to you, are you a Christian? Yeah, I accepted Christ. I belong to him. Have you received the Spirit? And you're like, what do you mean? Well, in the book of Acts, they would get saved, and then sometime later they would receive the Spirit, and they would speak in tongues. Have you spoken in tongues? Like, no. Some of you may have. It's fine, right? But, but look at this. Paul says, if any man doesn't have the Spirit of Christ... He doesn't belong to him. Now think about what that means. What does it mean to belong to him? Who do you belong to? Only two options. You belong to sin, Satan, and yourself, or you belong to Christ. You're like, well, how do I belong to Christ? You ever heard this phrase? Give your life to Christ. You're like, do I have to tell people? You know what's sad? You don't mind showing who you belong to on your football team, right? You'll throw your jersey on and go, count me in with them. And Jesus is gone. You want to belong to me? You confess me as your Lord and Savior. You give yourself to me in faith and you trust me and I will come and save you. Now, listen, if you hear nothing else, if you don't know whether you belong to Christ, there ain't nothing that's a close second to that. You, but I would beg you, please don't leave this morning until you find out, how can I know that I belong to Christ? Because if you don't belong to Christ, you're not going to heaven. That's what the Bible says. And Jesus wants you to belong to him. He invites you to come to him and believe. But if you say, I do belong to him, then you can mark this down. Then you do have the Spirit. So while there were exceptions in the book of Acts where some people didn't get the Holy Spirit right away, it's not God's norm, and it's not how God works. Paul says in the gospel of Christ, Romans chapter 8, if you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to him. So mark this down. If you know you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit in you. And trust me, though you might not have felt it, you go, I didn't feel him come in. I didn't get no quiver in my liver like they tell me at that church. Listen, you don't have to feel it. You don't have to experience some, ooh, just know this fact, the Holy Spirit indwells you. You are in the Spirit, and the Spirit is in you. And because of that, we're going to learn next week that you have tremendous 
capacity now to put to death the deeds of the body. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit. The Spirit prays for us and enables us to persevere. The Spirit has given you gifts. And as you and I learn to walk under the influence and prayerfully depend on the Holy Spirit, we are going to find that our lives are being changed by the Lord Jesus through the Spirit. Paul said it this way, we all with unveiled face as we behold in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed by the Spirit. And so I'm excited for next week and want to invite you to be reading ahead in Romans 8 and carefully looking these things over and saying, Lord, what does it mean to have the Spirit? Why do I have the Holy Spirit? What, what, what will the Holy Spirit do? What does it mean to walk in newness of the Spirit? Pray that as a church that we will learn to walk as a Spirit-filled, Spirit-believing church that's experiencing all that God has for us in the gospel, not just forgiveness, but a wonderful, powerful, Spirit-filled life. Doesn't mean you're not going to struggle. Doesn't mean we're not going to be defeated. Doesn't mean we're not going to fail. But that's not God's design or desire that we just walk around going, oh, wretched man that I am. Paul says, you and I have the spirit that we might fulfill the requirement of the law, that we might walk this new life, this life that's pleasing to God. And it's a wonderful thing. So put away your little red train Christianity. I think I can. I think I can. Pastor Tom told me we have to be nice and love each other. So I'm going to do that. And how's that been working? You didn't even get to the car, and you're like, he preached so long, I can't stand that guy. <laughs> but as you walk in the Spirit, you and I will learn to forgive and be gentle and kind. So let's pray together as we close. Father in heaven, we do want to thank you for the hope of the gospel. And that as we read in Romans, that we have the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And I do pray for our fellowship, Lord, that as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we will give our hearts attention to what it means to be people of the Spirit, people who have been changed and indwelled by the Spirit. And I want to pray that this week, as a body, your entire church here, Lord, that you will send us out encouraged that we have received the Spirit from God, that we might be pleasing to God. Oh, Lord, help us to grow. Help us to learn how through the Spirit to put to death our, our desires that are not from you. We bless you, O oh Lord, and we pray that the Spirit will work in our midst for the glory of God. And we thank you so much for the book of Romans. And Lord, it was good to be together to worship and communion and prayer and a study of your word. I believe that you will have divine appointments for each of us this week to minister to one another to walk with you, to forgive each other, and to grow together. So send us out, Lord, with joy and hope in the power of the Holy Spirit, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week, and we'll see you next week.